Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, November 21st, 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather each week at 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time from wherever we may be to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday, and this Sunday is November 26th. We're working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A, and a little more on Lectionary Year A at the end of the discussion. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share, question, and challenge each other. And this week, our friend Bill Hull is traveling, and we are thrilled to have as our guest for a second week the senior pastor at Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa, Florida, John Debevoise. And PCPC makes this podcast possible. And here are the folks joining us in today's discussion. Sarah Mickelson from Tampa. John Debevoise from Tampa. And I'm Don Upton, and I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the lectionary for this coming Sunday is Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'll read the scripture, and I'll be using the New Revised Standard Version. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. And I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, you took care of me. I was in prison, you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when it was that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly, I tell you, just as you did this, did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger, naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you. And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And that's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is... uh, this is a piece we get to at the close of every year A, uh, and we've got three questions we'll work through today. And Sarah Nicholson, uh, heads up, the first question is coming to you. What kind of counselor guidance is intended here in the face of the decisive, at least to most readers, not if not overwhelming language of the judgment and eternal punishment? What's the counseling guidance that's in- intended for all of us? take away. I add to that, Sarah, in the face of a variety of interpretations. What do you think, my friend? 
Well, it starts me down this path of um, thinking about the king being aligned with those who are in need. The king identifying himself as that. The king um, indwelling, if there's a better word, and I'm using that word because um, Ellen Rohan Ball from uh, the comments she made on D. Mark Davis's Left Behind and Loving It blog, um, dating back to, I think, well, it's posted again this year, so the comments are still there. She says, it gives me courage to move forward and stand with and protect those who are the least in my world. Um, but she says it gives her hope that the king has seen, heard, and identified with those who are the least. I hear these words of instruction thinking about where it falls in the Gospel of Matthew and, and the preparation of those people who are going to be building new, a new movement forward and that movement will evolve into church and that church will evolve into what we understand now as the church we practice. Um, so it's this interesting, if you will, prescription of how to live your life. Um, I think that's the first thing that crosses my mind. Um, I, I also like the words of Janet Hunt in her blog about this. Um, she says, I simply don't know when I'm going to encounter Christ next. And that's a lovely idea. Making all ground holy ground, all conversations holy, all work holy, and then all those around me become Christ. And I thought that was a wonderful gift to think about. So that's how I hear these words. Thank you, Sarah. John, your thoughts? I think American Christians, at least as I have experienced them, love this text. Um, and by that I mean when I talk to people in congregations and get to know them over time, you get a sense of their Christian literacy. You get a sense of what scriptures they know and have uh, with an ability to refer to them without having to look at the printed text. Um, and so this text is almost always in their library of literacy. They may not be able to connect it with um, Matthew, but they remember this counsel. Um, when you did it to the least of these, you did it also to me. They, I think this is, we've, we've gotten this into um, uh, the basic Christian literacy, um, at, at least for um, you know, that portion of the uh, participating Christian community uh, in the Western world that is actually engaged with having some knowledge of the text. You know, there certainly is a significant percentage of the, those who self-identify as Christians who aren't engaging with Scripture at all. But, but this, uh, these verses, I think, are in Christian literacy. Um, and and uh, so I think this, that, that we do well um, to understand the basic uh, level of this council meaning just the first uh, impetus of it, which is to give water to those who are thirsty, give food to those who are hungry, um, welcome strangers, uh, care for the sick, and visit people in prison. Um, and, and I even think into that literacy is a second step, which is that um, when we do that, 
most vulnerable. Um, we're doing it, in other words, the connection of the least of these being the most vulnerable, those who are without, those who lack um, these basic necessities in terms of making life secure and healthy and safe. Um, I think that's gotten there too. Um, so I, I, I think that, that at, at a strong level, that's intended. That basic counsel, care for, visit the sick, give water to the thirsty, feed the hungry, visit those in prison, give clothes to those who don't have them. And I think we see that played out. I think on the whole, feeding ministries, and certainly in the last 20 years, clean water ministries have uh, an uptick in terms of the participation of Christian congregations in the United States. Um, uh, there's, there's more intentionality about providing uh, clean water to vulnerable communities as a Christian impetus than I remember in the first part of my uh, 43 years of uh, ordination. And, um, and you know, uh, uh, I, I see prison ministries. They, they don't seem to me to be as popular as feeding ministries, um, but they are, they're there as a part of what the Christian community thinks it has a specific call to. Um, and clothing ministries, uh, collecting either used clothes or providing socks for the homeless. Um, so I think the Christian community receives this as very direct counsel, um, receives it significantly, meaning across a broad base, and in a very direct level, carries it out uh, that way. That's not to say we're doing it as well as we could. That's not to say everybody in the Christian community is aware of it or paying attention to it. But I think it's up there in the front runners of things that Christians have gotten out of the community. Thanks, John. I, I, I raised the council question because I've been in the past few weeks in settings with, uh, I guess I'll say extremes in terms of encountering this and encountering scriptures and folks in different walks of the scripture, how they're introduced mm-hmm. folks they haven't read the book, and which is, yes, that's, that's that's normal. That's part of our life. We're all absorbing this in different ways. And I hear the voice of uh, Bill Wallace, who we honor with this podcast, who taught lectionary uh, lectionary class at Palmacy at Presbyterian Church for generations. We miss him very much. And I hear his voice when he got into these particular this particular section of the Bible. He he was not afraid to emphasize the toughness of it, the abruptness of it, the the kind of fear that this can instill in people. And he, he and I heard his his voice as I went into this when I asked this question, and the way I went at it was, you know, this is just an opinion, but sometimes the the rest of the path, passage buries the lead, buries the headline. Like you want to go down and you want to see the separation, you want to see the last lines of this, when the fact is that even though there are dozens of interpretations about sheep and goats, the headline is not buried at all. Go to the first verse of the leading, and what, what I get out of it is, and especially in, in this interesting time in the United States around the world, there is no moral relativism. It's my first, the first counsel I get out. There's no moral relativism. It's finished. There's a fundamental truth, and it's represented in the form of Christ as king, period. Uh, there's a throne. It's, it's finished as a truth, period. Now read the rest of it. And even me in my life, I've jumped to the rest and gotten into, one commentator says, well, there are 12 interpretations. I'm like, well, let's get back to the headline. So Christ the King. And then 
the second one for me is there's uh, there's not a pending invasion. You know, it's not a king that's at the gates. Uh, it's already been something that's tangible. We may not know that because there's a surprise. And what did you, what did we do? We didn't know. But it's not like the, the universe hangs in the balance. There's already been this has already been flowing into into the world a long time, but it takes Christ to recognize how that works. We can't even see it ourselves. So it's, it's more of a summing up instead of at the gates and coming over the walls. It's like, no, this is this is what I'm seeing in this system that we're working in. This is what love looks like. And the final one is and is that the business of life, the life of love. And service, the business of life today is recognized. Even though I see myself standing here, I don't recognize it. But part of that summing up is the business of life and the service that John, you talked about, is seen, and it's it's all there. I'm not meant to. I don't want to set aside all the confusions and interpretations, but I just feel like it's so tempting to bury the headline, which is the first verse of this. Well, let's get on to the second question. And, John, uh, this one's going to be coming to you. Who is speaking or in what voices are present in verses like 36? Who is or what is the meaning of the word me? What is this revealing about the presence of the king? Um, and, and so I'm going to just, for, for help here, I'm going to read uh, 36 as an example. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. So the question for our consideration is, who's speaking or what voices are present in verses like the one in verse 36? John, why don't you go first on this one? Um, I'll start by saying this year, uh, I have found myself encountering this parable, it's often called a parable. Um, I'm not sure that it strictly meets that criteria. Um, but this year, this one comes in the context of two prior, the parable of the talents and the parable of the wise and foolish bridesmaids. And I, I hear the three together. Matthew puts them together. Matthew has Jesus saying them at the same time. And it, it seems to me more clearly apparent than it has in earlier years of going through the gospel of Matthew this way, that these three are, are meant to interpret each other. And, um, I mean, it just doesn't seem coincidence that Matthew remembers these three as Jesus saying at this moment. So I see them as interpretive of each other. And, um, you know, the, in the first one, um, Jesus is clear, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like... You know, he starts out in that first of the three. And then in the second one, he says, it is as if, all right? Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't tie it directly to the kingdom of heaven, and you have to interpret what is as if. But here, he starts out with this description of what's coming in the future, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. So it's more like the first and the middle, and um it brings forward the Son of Man. Um, this, is, this is in reference to your question, Don, who is speaking. So we start out looking at the Son of Man, and what does the Son of Man do? He sits on the throne, all right, the throne of glory, um, and all the angels with him. 
So this is biblical language that both the listeners then and now are familiar with. Um, and then when he gets to verse 34, one presumes because the Son of Man is seated on the throne, he's the king. You know what that move? I mean, it, it doesn't ever say here explicitly, the Son of Man is the king. Instead, it has the Son of Man sit on the throne, and then verse 34, then the king will say. So I, 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 I just note that because I think that's worth pondering on and reflecting on in terms of, do we think the Son of Man is the king? Um, is Jesus identifying here, and I think he is, with the Son of Man, um, and, and identifying with that role of king? It may be the closest place where we have Jesus identifying explicitly with the king, right, um, uh, in, in terms of the Gospels. Um, and that's why, of course, the electionary scholars, I think that's why, uh, it, it, they choose it for this Sunday, Christ the King. Um, yeah, not only is it the last scripture text that comes before Monday, Thursday, and the Good Friday in the life of Jesus, um, which I've dealt with in Holy Week, but it, it also um, uh, lifts up Jesus as the King at the height of his reign here and makes that witness that it's coming. Now, you were asking specifically about the use of the word me, but... Um, I think the word me is antecedent to the Son of Man and the King here and Jesus speaking. So that's how I think he, he, he gets to the me being himself um, uh, in that path or, or the King. Um, and, and the other voices, of course, are the voices of those who acted uh, with care and those who didn't. Um, and uh, I've been... Uh, helped and shaped, um, particularly by Hauervoss, uh, with respect to these texts, who, as I understand him and read him, says, part of what this text teaches us is how important it is for the um, Christian community in its living out the gospel to respond very directly to people, not just to care for institutions, but also to care for individuals that we encounter. And, and as a first step, you know, in some way not only to know them by name, but to be literally giving thirsty people something to drink, you know, and literally feeding someone who's hungry um, and, and welcoming them. Uh, it's not just about wanting to create a church that greets people on Sunday morning. It's about our own walk throughout the week and we're – we are doing these things, welcoming strangers and helping to put a jacket on a chilly morning around somebody who might be cold. Um, so that's, I, I see the me this year um, in terms of a call to look for the very personal in particular. Now, I support the larger ministries and I believe in a compassionate state uh, and a benevolent state. But I think the text is particularizing this to a one-on-one -on -one engagement here in terms of the me. Thank you. Yeah, Sarah, I, I was, when I was raising this, I was thinking about the folks that listen to this podcast who are preparing to moderate a class or lead a discussion. And, you know, how do you, how do you walk into this passage? And for me, I was thinking about for me, me, for me, from my point of view, 
be. How, how do we? How do you launch into a discussion like that? And I, I think it's. Uh, I'm ins- I'm inspired to think critically when I see me because I agree with what John is saying um, that to open up a dynamic of me so that you could you could force categories to understand Jesus. Uh, what if me were just other people? Uh, and I raise that as a failure because I don't know the me. It's almost like me as a goat going, when did I see other people? And I would write that on a whiteboard and go, me could be other people, me, me other me's, isolated. I can't see them. Another would be, me, Jesus only. Now, we could debate whether the Christ really can be that because Jesus is love and sees us and, and loves us. But just the concept of Jesus only, the me, also doesn't work because this whole passage is about all of us, all, all nations, all people. So it requires the other me. How, and it raises the question, Can is there a Jesus without the other me in it? How could because it's about love. And then Jesus and other people, the collective me, and what is that? And then Jesus, oh, me, me, Don, my point of view, a goat view, I think, uh, me. And then the me that is, I don't understand any of this at all, which I think this passage, for me, for me, raises up the fact that I don't, and, and that we would have the nation standing up going, Teach me about my own life. Teach me about what I did. You know, the presence of Jesus, despite. Teach, tell me what's, what's happening. And so I just, as a construct, I think to do me as other people exclusively, me as one other person, me as just Jesus, which doesn't work either, me as Jesus and other people, me as Jesus as another person, me in terms of my PO, my point of view, would be helpful, too, in terms of my isolation, my inability to actually see any of these things without Jesus and without seeing other people. Sarah, what do you think about this? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. First, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another. Nations. There's a certain accountability here. I think that that the the crux of this is how we see each other and how we see Christ. Um, if you have no empathy for those around you, and and you're goat headed, if that's the right way to describe it, you won't see people in need around you. If if you're sheep and you're following, interestingly enough the shepherd, you're going to see and have empathy for those people in need around you. So I think there's this interesting transition in are you following or are you on your own path? So going back to the idea of of do you take instruction or do you butt your head against it, so to speak? So that's my first thought. And then my second thought is um, going more complex the king or Christ is found among those in need. That's where he is most present. I was reminded just now that where two or more gather, Christ will be there. 
And so I'm, I'm thinking about that presence and how that's an inspiration to how we interact with each other. So it brings to me this sense of the reign of Christ is now. The kingdom is here. The commission is service and love. And, and if we move forward with that very auspicious instruction, we will unfold the kingdom further. We will extend the love and the reign of Christ further. And we will be um, in glory with Christ. If we fail, and, and I'm saying we can spend equal time in, in goatdom or sheepdom, um, it, you know, in our, in our own heads, so to speak, um, we, we have moments where we fail to extend the kingdom. And we have moments where we, we see the kingdom moving in front of us, where maybe we are the ones being given clothing or given time or given understanding. Um, and and in, in that way, um, people coming to us as Christ um, to bring us into the fold versus um, us being the hands and feet. So I think this this wonderful um, circle of, of activity and spirit that moves us toward um, sheeping instead of goating. Um, and, and it makes me cautious of the word goat and the greatest of all time kind of a statement about skills or talents. Um, it makes me think, Maybe we should be sheep more often than goats. To make a play on words. Well, thank you. Uh, one more question, and Sarah, I'll stick with you on this one, and, and we'll move through it. And then at the end, let's reserve a little time and uh, reflect on uh, a turning of the page and the lectionary calendar. From this is the last uh, discussion of uh, year A. Uh, and we're moving into year B, so we'll reserve a little time and reflect on the turning of the page. Uh, but, Sarah, at verses 37 and 38, people ask questions. And what are we to make of their apparent lostness or confusion or disconnectedness or, I say, curiosity about the declaration of the king? And there's a counterpoint of that in verse 44. Let me read 37 and 38 for context. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? So the question is, what, what do we make of this, you know, lostness, confusion, disconnectedness or curiosity? I, I might add to it surprise as well. Sarah, what do you think? Well, I found it very interesting that both responses are identical, that both groups seem to be acting not out of a sense of performance, but rather simply and authentically responding, um, that each is unaware of being observed while they interacted with those in need. So, you know, I, I think about, I don't know if you have kids that do this, they, um, when you ask them hard questions, they respond with a statement, but the statement goes up on the end and it sounds like a question. Like they're, they're wanting to find the right answer versus finding or authentically knowing the right answer. And so I hear in both of these responses 
a surprise that their responses were um, according to the will of the king or not. Um, I also find it interesting that for some it is their nature versus a choice. Um, That's the part that gives me anxiety because it's like, are, when you have you meet your kids and you're you're raising them, you watch them uh, to see if they pay attention to those around them, and and it, it frightens me sometimes when I see my children completely unaware that something has happened and that someone's in need of love and tenderness, um, and and I draw their eye to it in an effort to encourage that empathy or that consideration. Um, and that compassion. So I, I'm thinking about that as a parent. I'm thinking about that as uh, someone that interacts with a lot of people at work. And how do I, as a, how do I bear witness? How do I put the flashlight on the right thing to do on a regular basis um, with those around me who may or may not be aware of the story of the sheep and the goats? So I, I'm thinking about. What am I doing, and how am I doing it? A lot. Thank you. I've been through this week, and it's uh, whenever sheep and goats pop up, I'm, you know, I, I think I'm listening more carefully to other people making declarations about sheep and goats. They may not say sheep and goats, but what is right and wrong, and what is God, and what is not, and what is failing and not. And this week's just been filled with that, from you know the headlines to just people I'm talking to. I know, and I'm wondering if surprise. I like surprise on this. Uh, I used to, used to be wary because it was, I used to think about lostness and a lack of understanding, and now it's surprise. Uh, and when I hear that, I'm wondering if this is also a story about uh, if there's no surprise, then maybe I think I'm God. I'm not surprised by this, then maybe I'm Parson. Maybe I'm separate and goats. And the surprise is like, you don't, you're not kidding <laughs> You don't know. You don't know. There's one true God, and that, and that we're talking about the mind of the Creator here. So, the surprise kind of gets things right, and maybe says if you if you really want to go in terms of sheep and goats, and you want to make that decision, that's not that's more idolatry and selfishness and a lack of humility in it. I also wonder, Sarah, when you talked about it, is and this is another little pathway that maybe the surprise is an underestimation of what the singular relationships are. You know, we're dealing with ones and the me, not all, you know, the ones. And I'm just wondering if there's a little humor here, which is, when did I do this? One. One little person? Oh. (laughs) Oh, all I did was, it was so small. You mean that drink of water in 1973? Yeah. That little thing, that little person? I wonder if there's a little humor here in terms of downsizing what Christ believes is most important. I don't remember. I do. You you undervalued. You underweighted. You don't understand the weight of love at all. You did it. I saw it. It's the most important thing. And I, I, I think it's funny, right? It's like, oh, but that was that. I don't even remember their name. It couldn't have been important. Aha, here I am acting like God again making that decision. So it all adds up to what a surprise. So even we're learning at the seat of the throne, you know, we're engaged, 
Christ has flowed through the universe like water already. I still don't understand it. I'm undervaluing even my own actions in the name of Jesus. Wow. John, what do you think? Don, I really uh, resonate uh, with what you're saying about the power of specific kindness acts. The power of, you're calling it love, and I can embrace that too. But let's, you know, describe as the text does, this is about mercy um, and, or compassion on a very singular level. And, and you're saying this text, you're suggesting as I hear it, this text is teaching us that these are so powerful um, that the king remembers and are the criteria, a specific act of kindness by which someone is brought into eternal life. Um, and, and, and that connects for me in this third question about connectedness with the first two parables, um, the one about the um, foolish and wise bridesmaids, where at the end you may remember the bridegroom, when they knock at the door and say, please let us in, he says, do I know you? I don't think I know you, do I? It's, it's like the confusion and surprise here at the end of this text. Although here we see the clear valuing of mercy. We, we don't get that in the first text, okay, in the description of the bridegroom, and we don't get it in the second one, in the description of um, the talents. You know, that, that, that master at the end of that text, at the, you know, poor servant who in fear buried his talents, um, he's ruthless towards him. <laughs> you know, he's cast down also. Um, and so I am so grateful this text is the last of the three and has the most explicit identification of Jesus with the king here because the valuing comes deeply on the individual acts of mercy at the end. And I think that's a connectedness. This parable helps to clarify the other two for me. Um, and uh, so not to linger on that particular topic, but to um, stick with this parable at hand. Um, I think that um, the uh, uh, questions about um, how do we deal with the text as a whole, I started by saying I thought the Christian church in the Western world had really appropriated these words when you did it to the least of these and the specific acts of care, um, water ministries, food ministry, clothing ministries, um, we appropriated that. I think we dealt with the second part of it, the judgment part, that you're right to remember Bill Wallace calling to our attention by just denying that or by just ignoring it. I think that's how we dealt with it in general. So, and I say that because certainly um, American and also Western Protestantism has had, um, and especially evangelicalism in the last uh, 150 years, has had a, a, a strong emphasis on um, a personal profession of faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. In fact, one of the solas, right, is by grace alone. It's not by works. It's not about works at all. It's about profession of faith. Even the thief on the cross, you know, is saved with, with no prior works. It's by profession of Jesus alone. We've hammered that as a part of, and, 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 and with intensity, particularly amongst uh, strong evangelicals who have uh, an insistence on personal profession of faith. This text doesn't mention that at all. In fact, on the contrary, the text says they don't know him. 
<laughs> not only were they not making a profession of faith and he was the king, they didn't even, you know, recognize him when they were doing it. Um, so it's a heightened emphasis on the power of mercy on the, on the kind act. Um, and I think that's been, because that disrupts the, the theological uh, background or context that we've brought to, you know, the intensity of evangelical Protestantism, we just ignore that part because <laughs> it doesn't fit you know, with the rest of the theological paradigm we've uh, placed on ourselves. But um, it's very broadening that way. It ought to broaden, you know, our um, sense of what um, Christ is calling us to. Um, and I think it's a dominant place in Matthew's text and in his life of Jesus. It's showing up. This is the text that Matthew chooses to have coming out of the mouth of Jesus as he remembers it right before the holy acts of the Last Supper, crucifixion and resurrection. And there's a heavy emphasis on mercy, the power of mercy here. And I think that's that's the connection um, for us. Uh, Bill Wright, Bill Wall was right to call us to a solemn and um, even um, quiet um, uh, mystery in terms of the seriousness of these things, we should keep silence in the face of it because we don't fully understand it. We can't, but the word eternal is used, you know, twice at the end, eternal punishment and eternal life. Um, And that's a solemn thing, no matter how you interpret it or translate it, uh, that the consequences of failing to act mercifully to the least of these, are profound. But it also makes the corollary, doesn't it, that the um, the power of mercy, the power of mercy is equally profound. Thank you, John. And uh, we don't have too much time left, but let's invest that in just, if I could, uh, a, a reflection from each of us about the turning of the page we're in lectionary year A with this gospel reading, and we're going into year B and uh, Advent. And uh, the reason I'm raising it is it's, uh, it's been an important part of my life being on this journey, not just returning the page, but how the wash, rinse, repeat of the three cycles of lectionary uh, are present every day, if we like. And as uh, we've encountered churches and groups and individuals, all of us in our walks, that they're coming back to this. It puts us on literally the same page, uh, even though it changes over time as we grow and we share our stories. And uh, I I just uh, think it turning the page right now is a good time to reflect on what lectionary is for us. Uh, John, for for Palmacy and the leadership it's showing and holding out lectionary uh, on an ecumenical basis. And I'll just, as I turn to you, John, and Sarah, you'll get the, the final word on this. Uh, you know, the, the, for me, the return, the returning, the returning, the returning to the gospel lectionary uh, is present every day uh, in some way, in big ways, because I went to the Verdi Requiem, our wonderful Charlotte Symphony Orchestra, and it's wonderful oratorio. Of course, the, the libretto is sheep and goats, and I felt my wife's hand reach over to me because she knew I was thinking about it, working on it. 
but also on a daily basis. It's not annual, it's hourly. It keeps coming back and back. Not because I remember, but the people I hang out with, even you friends, remind me of it in their own stories every day. So returning the page now, John, what, is, what does that mean to you and at Pomacea being a church that, that focuses on lectionary? Well, on a very individual basis, I, I uh, acknowledge, and I think we're right to acknowledge it, that um, we are bringing our readings in Matthew's gospel in the cycle to an end. We've been doing it for a year, and um, I think it's right for us not only to acknowledge it, but to thank God for the gospel of Matthew and for the way it has presented the life of Jesus. This is, this is the right day to say that and to be aware of it and to treat it with tenderness holding the Bible closed now on Matthew with gratitude and awareness that we're now picking up another. Um, So I I, I appreciate your mentioning it, and I'll be aware of that as we come forward Sunday, too. On on a larger basis, um, I I find myself um, having to reassure some of my friends because of our heavy use, uh, my community friends and congregational friends, our heavy use of the lectionary uh, here, and I say heavy, meaning we embrace it uh, and use it regularly in worship. Um, to just say, you know, nobody is saying here that the lectionary is an article of faith, not, not out of the congregation I serve. None of the pastors are saying, it's in the apostles to read. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, and I believe in the lectionary. It's not. It's not an article of faith. Um, but it's a tool. And it's a very helpful tool in my experience. It's a very helpful tool because it causes us to keep reading through the Bible as a whole and, and causes us to uh, be exposed to parts of the Bible that we might even subconsciously be inclined to skip otherwise. Um, we focus on the Gospels here uh, typically, but the, the course electionary lifts up four readings each week, and that those four together take us through in the three-year cycle, the breadth of the scripture. So uh, that's a helpfulness out of it. Um, But it's just a tool. It is a helpful tool also because it lets musicians plan for worship um, in a way that allows for practice that treats uh, the church music seriously because they they then can be, um, you know, preparing music that interprets the same text that preachers are preaching on and that congregations are reading. And that's just a wonderful opening of uh, worship together. It's a helpful tool. I think it's kind of a miraculous tool. When I think about the fact that because of this tool, we find, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the majority of Christians around the world on a particular Sabbath reading the same text. You know, when you think about the Catholic Christians and the Protestant Christians who are using the lectionary, you're, you're well over half of all the Christians in the world, and, and, and um, that's astonishing unity, isn't it? That the text we're reading uh, is the same text they're going to be reading in Papua, Uganda, and in Mombakoshu, Haiti, and in the, uh, Honduras, and the Catholic parishes. Um, that they're, We couldn't pull that off simply on our own. That's a spirit thing, to get that kind of unity in the face of this broken and chaotic world. So I have a humility in the face of a spirit work kind of unifying miracle <laughs> in terms of what, what happens as a result of it. And I rejoice and thank God for that gift in it. Thank you, God, for the gift of Matthew's life of Jesus.
Well, thank you, John. And, and Sarah, you and I have talked about this for years, that uh, I'm blessed to be able to travel in my work and my career. And uh, there's no condition. I'm not going outgoing, are you on lectionary or not? But it's just a daily inbreaking of references, analogies, and the storytelling. So whether I'm sitting uh, listening to a pastor I've never heard before or a sermon before as I journey out my ecumenical journey, uh, there is an inbreaking that takes place in our own relationships because of this. You know, I, people cock their heads, go, really? I, do we let, Let's talk about this. There's an inbreaking that I think re- re- reflects the inbreaking of Christ, and that it's that it is around the world. Uh, it it accelerates the conversation. It accelerates relationships, just kind of like Jesus. Uh, and so it's it served me well in a selfish way to be able to. I have friendships and deep and and deepening uh, relationships. Because lectionary gives us a platform on which to explore our lives together. Sarah, you get last word. What are your thoughts as we turn the page? I'm thinking in a more personal way about the voices of Matthew and the voice, the coming voice of Mark, because that's where we're looking next into year B. And I love the tenderness that Matthew brings to his storytelling. Um, and there's a humility about Matthew that I don't often see emerge in Mark. It's a different kind of voice in Mark. Mark has an energy, an urgency, and a, and a certain amount of um, inertia that moves through the way that Mark will tell the stories. Yeah, I think about those places in my life when I need a Matthew moment. Maybe I want to sit by a, a, a slow-moving creek and, 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 and hear that comforting sound. And there are moments where I need that inertia that a, a fast-moving river will bring to the story. And, and so I, I look at the words of Matthew and the words of Mark as having two different approaches and different, if you will, intentions. Um, and there are going to be moments where I need that tenderness that Matthew brings to the story, and there's going to be moments where I need that inertia that Mark brings to the story. And so I'm kind of in my motion of moving between these two. I'm considering a change of, of um, I should say, the dynamic urgency or the, the dynamic um, energy that Mark is going to bring. And I'm thinking about, Am I ready to make that leap? Am I ready to ride surf waves instead of paddle out on, on small, you know, knee-sized waves that are just easy for me to stand in? So I, I'm thinking about that perspective as well. And for a lot of newcomers to lectionary, a lot of new churches listen to this. They've done it for the first time. And I just want to say that first reading is sometimes the best reading. You know, try it. You'll like it. Just because we keep going through cycles doesn't mean that first view, mm-mm, it's wonderful. And for those listening in, Palmasia Presbyterian Church is at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. They make this podcast possible. For more information, you can go to palmasia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that site to you for great music, reflections, discussions of lectionary, disagreements about lectionary, uh, prayers, and outstanding sermons, and uh, that includes our friend John Devil Boy. So check that out, uh, and you're always welcome, and we'll see you next time.